Paul McLaughlin here, and welcome to McLaughlin at Work. Two important episodes today. One is discussion with John Mullins, his subject matter, business models, or more important, business plans and thinking about business plans, entitled Getting to Plan B, Breaking Through to a Better Business Model, with his co-author, Randy Commissar of Kleiner Perkins. Interesting. And number two, healing the wounds, overcoming the trauma of layoffs and revitalizing downsized organizations with David Knorr, Professor Emeritus from Elon University in North Carolina, and this is an update of his book from 1993 of the same title, same subject matter, and it deals with the survivors of the trauma of layoffs, uh, the corporate body that has to go on. Two very interesting, different perspectives on one is starting out and one is starting all over again. Here we go. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work here on Manhattan's West Side, speaking with John Mullins, who is the author of Getting to Plan B, Breaking Through to a Better Business Model, authored by himself, John Mullins, and Randy Commissar. Paul McLaughlin, as we talk about management, leadership, and employment in the workplace, talking today about essentially business plans, but I'd like to think it's a way of thinking about business more almost than a business plan, John Mullins. That, that's exactly what it is, Paul. It's a, it's, it's a way to say that the old way to think about starting an entrepreneurial venture, which was uh, you create a business plan and you pretty soon turn on Excel and you start filling numbers into Excel. And uh, as one of my entrepreneurial friends says, a couple of beers and an Excel spreadsheet, you can make a lot of money in no time. Well, <laughs> 10 years ago, we saw that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that stuff got back 10 years ago. It doesn't get back today. And, and an awful lot of that stuff doesn't work. And, and what Randy and I worry about is the fact that there's an awful lot of entrepreneurial talent and passion around fundamentally important things to do that doesn't get funding or if it gets funding doesn't succeed because people have written a business plan that acts like a straitjacket. And I think what Randy and I have learned over our years of working with little companies and growing companies is that this, the straitjacket plan doesn't work. The, you, you can't really foresee the path that a young venture is going to follow. To some extent, your uh, book and experience says that the first plan you come out with is predictably, if not doomed to failure, doomed to change. Uh, yeah, but I would like to right. ask you, first of all, before we get too much further, to put your and Randy's uh, bona fides on the table for the audience of McLaughlin at work so that they, they understand to whom I'm speaking. Well, Randy, my co-author, has been a partner at Kleiner Perkins, so he's and he runs little companies and helps turn them into big companies. That's what his job is at Kleiner. But he was also an entrepreneur. But before initially. that, he's been an entrepreneur. He's built entrepreneurial companies. He was at Apple. He has sold companies to Apple. So he has been a, an engaged observer of the Silicon Valley scene for more than two decades. Okay. So he's at the heart of that infrastructure. Right. Um, I spent the first years of my uh, business career in large companies and uh, one of the things I, I fortunately got to do is is uh, leave my large company and go work for a little tiny company on the west coast of the U.S. called Gap in, in uh, let's see, 1977. And I had a chance to help make Gap a little bigger company. And I learned what it was like there to, to really grow an entrepreneurial company. Um, after 20 years, to make a long story now, short. Now, were you in retail or were you just in business? I, I had been in retailing. So I'd been at the jewel companies in Chicago, big diversified retailer. And I got a call from a classmate at Gap, who had gone to Gap out of business school or soon after business school, who said, we're building this little company. We need some people who know something about retail. You appear to be one of those people. Shall we talk? And we had a great time building that company. And uh, I did a couple startups after that. But long story short, by 1989, I'd been in retailing in, uh, uh, just about 20 years. And if you know anybody in retailing, 20 years is probably enough in that uh, very intense and challenging industry. So I said, that, what am I that's what do I'm led to life? believe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do when I grow up? Maybe I should be a B school professor, which I think was in my genes. Were you at Harvard Business School? No, I did my MBA at Stanford. Okay. 
uh, and uh, went back and earned my PhD after this 20-year stint in in the real world. So I'm I'm a person who's who's done what I teach, uh, but has the uh, the discipline and the tools now to look at things in a structured way and say, really, what's going on in this phenomenon that we call entrepreneurship today? That's so interesting to everybody. And can we help people understand what actually works here? I had trouble getting my arms around working on plan A to find the holes in it to build plan B, C, and D. To start at the back end, what do you tell somebody who's an entrepreneur who does have an idea about plan B as opposed to plan A? Well, I, actually what we tell them, and, and I just finished uh, a couple of months of this, we run something at London Business School called Entrepreneurship Summer School each summer. And I work with this year 51 students and participants from outside London Business School, all of whom have an idea that they are passionate about when they arrive. And their purpose for the summer is to figure out, is this idea really worth writing a business plan for or really worth leaving my current job for to really invest some time and maybe some of other people's money to get this thing off the ground so every summer for nine years i've been doing this and for nine years yeah um, and and, and, the, and the, the preface is that people come there before they write their business plan yeah now as a practical matter a couple of them have already done that and and that's fine but they all they have to come with an idea and they have to have vetted that idea at some level before we let them in so these are people pretty serious about wanting to do this uh -huh. and and the interesting thing we found over these last nine years is that there have been now 90 startups out of our summer school graduates uh, of those 90 80 are still in business a remarkable statistic 90 startups out of roughly 400 uh, out of if I'm doing the math right out of roughly well we just finished last weekend with this year's cohort okay. and, and the others are last year's are, are just out of business school now so if you take out those right. two groups it's uh. about 90 out of 250 people Impressive. So something like one in three went on to start a new business uh, of those 90 80, 80 are still in business but to me the coolest data point is that the uh, of those 90, two-thirds were not the idea they studied in summer school. So they had Not the idea they came in with. Not the idea they came in with. It, it might be a little bit of a tweak to that idea. It might be a big tweak to that idea. But for many of them, they said, boy, I'm glad I figured that out in summer school so I don't have to waste a year or two of my life pursuing a fundamentally flawed idea. So it's, it's not that you, that you look ahead to a plan B necessarily, you actually devote all your waking moments to plan A and, and you're trying to make it work. But you do it, we, as Randy and I advocate, in an open-minded kind of hypothesis testing manner so that, so that these assumptions that you kind of build into what you think is plan A, you know, well I think cus the customer wants this product or this service and I think the customer is willing to pay X or Y. But many of those are just hypotheses, really, when you get started. Do you, you have, do do you have any sense um, of how the industries break out for people who uh, are thinking about starting things like this? You came out of retail. Is it necessarily high-tech professional it, services? High-tech, low-tech, service, manufacturing, India, China, Canada, all over the place. Of the of those companies, most of them were either uh, focused uh, away from North America or would ultimately come into North America as a, a multinational, if you will. Because London Business School is such a global institution in which only 10% of the students are Brits, uh, these businesses that we that I work with over there tend to be uh, from all over the world. Some will be. U.S. focused, others will be globally focused. We had a couple this summer from India, uh, one from Brazil. They're all over the world because that's the nature of the institution. Randy, of course, works in Silicon Valley and most of those people are eyeing, at least initially, the American market, which is you know, a great place to start. Uh, and did, does he have a, uh, uh, not a within the London School, but does he have a, a similar kind of program here in the U.S. that he runs or? Well, I guess de facto. Well, <laughs> similar in the sense that when Kleiner, Fer when Kleiner Perkins backs somebody, they say, okay, come on in, here's a check to get you started or get you to the next level maybe. And uh, 
Randy's going to sit on your board and Randy's going to help you <laughs> turn this little company into a rocket ship. That's what they're trying to do. By looking, by making some of the hard questions, uh, which, and I guess those are the, the fill-ins of the boxes in what you refer to as the dashboard, which is a mechanism, and maybe you could just touch on your analogs and anti-logs that you identify in the book. Y yeah, the, the basic idea kind of comes, uh, if, well, c comes out of the movie industry. If you think about movies, somebody once did some research on the movie industry and figured out there were only 36 or 37 possible movie plots. I saw that written and, in the and book. And all, all movies are just some combination of those. You're either male or female. Those, those <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, there's chick flicks and there's action <laughs> flicks, you know. And, yeah. and, um, and everything's a combination of, uh, of those. Well, business is really kind of the same way. So though many people say, well, my idea is a new paradigm and it's never been done before and we have no competition. You see, throwaway lines like that in business plans. But actually, if you sit down and think about it, somebody else has done something like you've done before. So example, Steve Jobs, when he took Apple from being what was frankly a very innovative but struggling PC maker into a music industry phenomenon that has rewritten all the rules. Um, y you, could, you could look at what Steve did and say, well, you know, there's some analogs to that. It had already been proven by the Sony Walkman that people wanted to walk around with music, okay? So that's an analog you could draw on. It had already been proven by Napster that people wanted to download music online one tune at a time. Now, turned out that was illegal doing that from Napster. Turned out. Tur turned out that way, but it, it wasn't clear yet right. when Jobs started that that was going to be the case. Um, but you could maybe see that coming. And so he said, well, is there a way to kind of put together these things uh, and do something differently? And, and then, so, so those were analogs. Napster was an analog and, and Sony was an analog. There was an also what we call an anti-log, and that is uh, a one of the early mp3 players called the rio um, i never had one but i understand it was the clunkiest thing you'd ever want to use and it just wasn't the kind of interface that you know apple is such a master at brings me back uh, to the first piece of equipment i had in business school it was referred to as the bomar brain i don't know whether you remember the bomar brain uh, never saw in, the, one of in the 70s and it added uh, had a, a primitive LED and it added, uh, subtracted, multiplied, and divided. And we thought, this is, this is the end. <laughs> this is a rocket ship. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to take us to the moon and back. What can hold yeah. us back now? The Bomar brain. Yeah. But the other thing Steve Jobs did that was so smart is he, he kind of put together these ideas and said, well, gee, if, if we could have a really good interface and something that's really easy to use, like all Apple stuff is, that's better than the Rio. And if we could... If we could get the music industry on side, uh, that we aren't stealing their music, but we're going to sell their music, maybe we could have a business here. And the ingenious thing he did was to go to the razor and razor blade uh, analog. And, and many companies have done that. Hewlett Packard does that with printers. You know, we buy a printer for 100 bucks, right. and then we pay, what, 25 bucks for a little uh, 19 milliliter container of ink and uh, guess where Hewlett Packard's making all the money you know it's on all that ink but what Jobs did ingeniously I think is to say well we're not going to be able to do that here so let's turn it upside down let's make all the money on the hardware this revolutionary little device called an iPod and we'll get the music companies to sign up to sell tunes for 99 cents a pop and and we'll see if they're they'll play and they did and the rest is history. It it is, and and I guess because I've I've read your uh, I've read the comments, uh, scanned through the comments uh, in the book, and, and saw the stories. And like anything, the stories are extraordinarily compelling. compelling stories. <laughs> they yeah. are unbelievable. They are people have done. Uh, and and how in in virtually every case, and I guess Jobs himself narrowly avoided or actually went under in in some way or or other, but then they came back with their idea and their idea caught hold. Which raises the question in my mind, uh, John Mullins, the um, author, co-author of Getting to Plan B with Randy Commissar, Harvard Business Press being the imprint, uh, is where, where in the dashboard does leadership come in? 
I mean, let me let me put it in a much more personal. Can, can you look at your class of 50 that arrive at, at your doorstep in the summer and say, you know what, I don't know what your business plan is, but I can tell from you that you've got what it takes? Well, you know, there's, there's a really interesting sort of set of research that's been done around entrepreneurship and leaders and what's the difference between entrepreneurs and managers and is there something special in the genes of entrepreneurs? In short, the question is, are successful entrepreneurs born or made? Right. Um, it's, it's really pretty clear that entrepreneurs come from every kind of stripe you can imagine. So you look at Jeff Hawkins, who started Palm Pilot, for example. He's an introvert. You'd walk past him on the street. You wouldn't think that guy's um, some big flashy guy. Michael Dell's an introvert. On the other hand, you have people like, in the UK, Richard Branson, who's built the Virgin He's not an companies. introvert, he, by any... By and any, and uh, Branson is out there every, yeah. every moment recreating himself and um, yeah so and his product so it takes all kinds so so there isn't just a single kind of prototypical entrepreneur but I but to the to your question about leadership I think what leadership's all about is finding new ways to do things that are better for customers and that can survive in the long term and when and when you find a way to do that you build a successful company because the customers will it into being and the customers support it and the customers stay with it. That's what building entrepreneurial companies is about. Um, I guess social and, networking and, and in some measure has shown that. us that, that if people are willing to talk to you about it without you actually being there, that's the best, almost the best kind of marketing that you could possibly have. Well, it certainly has shown that, but interestingly in the social networking world, it's not clear yet how the the people that lie at the center of all of that are yet going to make money. You know, Facebook has all these users, but the definition of customer is something different than a definition of user. A user is somebody who uses your stuff. A customer is somebody who pays you. And there's nobody, well, there are some people now paying Facebook, but there's, there's a dearth of, of customers at Facebook and Twitter in these places, and they haven't figured out exactly what is the business model that's going to turn these things from a, a social revolution, which they are today, into real companies. Google faced the same challenge. When Google started, it was a search engine because Sergey and Larry wanted to build uh, a better search engine that would organize the world's information effectively and efficiently. Well, that's a glorious, uh, noble calling. And they certainly did but that. <laughs> but at the but. beginning, there was n no way to make money because they had this wonderful search engine. And, and in their view, uh, charging for searches was it was evil because it invited um, distorted results you know who who pays comes to the top of the list finally they figured out uh, from another analog that there was a way to separate the objective search from the paid search and make it clear to the consumer which was which and all of a sudden there was their revenue model cash started coming in by the shovel full and they had a business before that they had a search engine after that they had a business and that's the power of figuring out a business model that'll get you where you want to go. Taking your expertise away from the entrepreneur, why wouldn't the investment community have be able to look at Google the way you would suggest and find that, boy, Apple's got it. Apple is a $200 stock when it was uh, 90 bucks, and Google is a $400 stock when it came out at um, 85 or 100 or wherever the opening price was, and then it soared. G give me the benefit of, of your experience to say, how is the way you speak to um, entrepreneurs different from the, how the investment community should look at what the entrepreneur is doing? It's a good question, Paul. Um, my, my sense is that investors like Randy and I tend to look at analogs. So I, I think when they follow a stock or tell people, make investment recommendations about a stock, they often say, well, this stock is like that stock, and that other stock did this, so this one's going to do that. Um, so, so I think there are actually quite a lot of parallels there. But the other parallel... <laughs> but then the analogs you know, would but also but play but in. But the other parallel is that you don't know much about the future f for stocks. And, and for entrepreneurial companies, you don't know much about their future either. You know, we, we all said in the beginning that Amazon was going to be a big bookstore. Well, Amazon's a heck of a lot more than a bookstore today. Well, 
who foresee the who who really foresaw that except maybe Jeff Bezos? Uh, y you might have foreseen that they would get into other merchandise categories than books. Okay, fair enough. Would you have foreseen that they would then take their online retailing expertise and sell it to the likes of Target? You probably wouldn't have guessed that. Would you have then taken a, another leap and said, well, gee, could they, could they take all this ability to process this data and process transactions online and become a utility for uh, data processing activity with a whole bunch of computers sitting in a big field in, in Oregon? Right. Who, who would have thought that? So that's... But that's the same discipline that, in effect, you encourage your entrepreneurs in Plan B to be constantly testing the hypothesis. That at the heart of my question is, and you've answered it in part by, by pointing to the successes of the people, that the stories you have here are in, in, in the mirror and they're accurate. Um, how do you give that same confidence uh, moving forward on perspective, uh, that the dashboard works prospectively? Well, I, I guess one of the ways Randy and I think about it is that what you want to do, is, since we know you're going to make mistakes along the way, because you can't foresee how, how your customers will react or how competitors will react or how the world around you will change. You, you simply can't foresee it all. So you're going to make some decisions that aren't going to line up right with all of those things as they happen. The purpose of the dashboard is to get really clear about what the indicators are of the progress you are making or are not making so that you can measure your, measure your trajectory and say, uh-oh, we thought we were going to be on this path, but we're not. Let's take a fresh look. And, and where I think many businesses, both entrepreneurial companies and bigger ones, get into trouble is they aren't... Um, they aren't clearly focused on measuring a very small number of crucial indicators that are the uh, that are going to tell them whether the heartbeat of the business is still really there. I, I, that's what a dashboard does. It focuses you on a very small number of indicators and says, "We got to know if these things are panning out because if they don't pan out, that means the fundamentals under which we built this business aren't there, and it's time for Plan B." I know you have a term in your book that, that summarizes uh, one of the um, uh, tipping points, if you will, and that's leaps of faith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> leaps of faith that obviously you and Randy have had in your career, and uh, the leaps end up what, over the chasm, and what, you're on the what, other side. Well, we all we all take those leaps of faith. Um, so, so the entrepreneur will will, as we counsel him, look at history and look at analogs and look at anti-logs and figure out what's gone before but just because Sony Walkman uh, sold 300 million Walkmans uh, at a certain price doesn't mean that Apple can sell the iPod which is now a different product in a different day and age at some clear price point so Steve Jobs could say yeah I'm gonna try and make all my money on the hardware and kinda give away the the blades the the tunes but was that right price three hundred dollars, or was it two hundred dollars? You know that was a leap of leap of faith, as as we will people call it. pay? Will that's one of the common ones. Will people actually pay three hundred bucks for this really cool music player? Well, there's only one way to find that out, right? right? Yeah, you exactly. can do lots of market research, but there's one way to really find out, and that's put it on the market and see who who uh, gets out their credit <laughs> right. card. Right, and as you spoke. As I listened to you, I was wondering which came first, the price or real cool? In other words, you can put it into the market. You don't know whether people will think it's really cool or not. Y you can't be sure. No, you can't. So, so, so what you've got to do is say, well, my, my leap of faith is that, people, that I can sell these things for 300 bucks. But, but a leap of faith is, is something you believe, but you actually have no evidence that you're right. That's what a leap of faith is. Y you believe it. Yeah, yeah, I think this is true. I think people will pay 300. Do I have any evidence? No. Well, I think I better get some evidence. So how do you do that? You need to find a way to do some kind of market test if you can quickly, hopefully inexpensively, and, and, and get some real-world feedback. And getting back to where we started, you know, most business plans have very little real-world feedback at the time they're written. There are tons of leaps of faith in there that say, well, I think think it's going to cost this much to do that and I think customers are going to pay me this and they're going to buy that many but all those are leaps of faith 
And Almost so, by definition, because they're be, new. Because they're new. So how do you know? Well, actually, the, the reality is you don't know. So what we're trying to get people to do is say, okay, let's be disciplined about this, and let's test those, let's identify what those leaps of faith are so we're clear about what they are, and then let's test them with hypotheses in a systematic kind of way and find out, oh, yeah, we're right about that. People will buy an iPod for 300 bucks. Hallelujah. Uh, but maybe there's something else that doesn't work and then you say okay how am i gonna how am i gonna change that so this this trip to plan b or c or d or whatever is a series of incremental steps sometimes radical ones sometimes you have to put the whole thing in the in the trash can and start over but more often it's a it's it's mid-course corrections that are iterative in nature you circle back on yourself oh that doesn't work that's let's try that again but by being by knowing that's the likely path you're way ahead of the guy who thinks all I have to do is keep banging down this brick wall until it falls. Well, usually the brick wall wins. John Mullins, the book Getting to Plan B, Breaking Through to a Better Business Model and as much a thought process as one uh, approaches entrepreneurship with a great idea. Uh, John Mullins and Randy Commissar are the co-authors uh, John, thank you very much for your time. Good luck with your course and bringing entrepreneurship to profitable ventures. Thanks, Paul. And uh, we look forward to uh, speaking to you further about getting to Plan C after Plan B uh, doesn't uh, doesn't materialize the way almost inevitably it will not. That's right. But it's a great journey, and uh, th there's no more interesting career than being an entrepreneur and and following this path and trying to get to where where it can take you. It's a fascinating journey. Good luck to you and good luck to your students. Thank you. And as a footnote to my discussion with uh, John Mullins, I noticed that in uh, Wall Street Journal uh, recently, there was an article about the auctioning of uh, patents. And uh, none other than Randy Commissar was quoted as a way of dealing with realizing value out of patent holders. So in the book, getting to plan B, when one of the things that you have is a patent and you find that the product has many uses, Randy Commissar is telling you that uh, plan B may be look at the value of the patent itself before you actually create a product. It may be worth more to other people to develop it than you've got it for yourself. All here on McLaughlin at work. Glad to have you with us. Glad to have Classroom 24-7 as one of our sponsors. They assist you in web learning and particularly for training certification. Look them up, see how they can help with your particular web learning needs and particularly with deriving certification from testing on the web. Now, we are going to turn our minds, hearts, and voices to speaking this afternoon with David Knorr. The title of his book, or perhaps more important than the title, the, his expertise caught in the subtitle, Overcoming the Trauma of Layoffs and Revitalizing Downsized Organizations. The title of the book is Healing the Wounds. We are here in the fall of 2009. This book follows on one that David wrote in 1993. I'm looking forward to the discussion of the comparisons between 93 and 2007 and 2009. David, thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Paul. Um, what, what brought you to revitalize your previous book and, and how did you go about updating it in such a way? I've kind of had an ongoing research study with organizations for a long time, and uh, I felt that this current set of layoffs uh, was significantly different in scope and depth and magnitude than the first go-around. And to be honest about it, I don't think a lot of people learned the lessons uh, of the late 90s and applied them to jobs uh, that are cut now. So I thought there was a need for organizations and for people to think through the impact of layoffs and downsizings on organizational revitalization to put the pieces together after downsizing. The 
premise uh, of your first book in, in, in 93 to refresh the memory of, of people who didn't live it but only read about it, what was that period just prior to 93, that, and, and how would you compare it to, the, to where we are now? Well, prior to 93, it was what I call the old psychological contract, which was that people were tied into their organization for the long term. People were seen as long-term <coughs> assets to be developed and nurtured over a career, and they trusted that the organization would take care of them. And so when the layoffs hit, they had uh, basically put a lot of their emotional and psychological eggs in the organizational basket. Who they were was where they worked. And so they didn't just lose a job, they lost uh, their sense of purpose and relevance. And most organizations spent some time dealing with those people who leave, but very little time dealing with those people who stay. And those are the people who they need to turn organizations around. And that's what kind of happened in the first, what I call the first go around, mm -hmm. downsizing. Uh, but I think we, we forgot those lessons. Uh, and uh, if we fast forward to the current recession, uh, what we find is that uh, the same thing's happening. Uh, even the young uh, new college graduates are somehow being seduced into defining who they are by where they work, not by what they do. And so a lot of people today are also being devastated by downsizing. Now you have um, students, I think, is, is, one, is one, certainly one end of the spectrum. You have been associated with Elon University in North Carolina for some time. Yes. Uh, and and you're a professor emeritus there. That's true. And and what and you were part of a, uh, a creative leadership group also. So your your breadth of experience goes from teaching to consulting to doing. I've got so many uh, strange background. I actually started as an executive of a large company, uh, and it was a company called Controlled Data Corporation. I remember. It. Do you? Well, <laughs> you're. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember it, it well. It started as a very small. It was a computer company, and, and it, it was like like digital. Back it, in exactly. Those days. It went up when I started. There was like three thousand employees. Uh, it went up to about two hundred thousand. And when I left there was, was that in North Carolina? Uh, it was headquartered in Minneapolis. Okay. Uh, but I was the president of a large division of control data, uh, and it was a consulting services division. We consulted back to the parent corporation and also outside. Uh, I presided over the demise of that organization from a little over 2,000 employees to about 30. I in uh, your division? In my division. Over what period of over time? Over about two years. Now, we divested some, but it was... Uh, the bust of uh, U.S. big mainframe computer businesses. and um, What era was that, or what years were that? Uh, that was uh, probably 1980s and early 90s. Okay. Uh, I went back to school at that time because I kind of knew I wanted to change careers, and uh, my doctoral dissertation was on the effects of layoffs on those people who stay, mm -hmm. uh, the survivors. Uh, and that thus came the first edition of Healing the Wounds, which is really a more uh, easily read uh, version of my doctoral dissertation. And since that time, I've spent a lot of time studying a number of companies over an uh, extended time frame on what they've done to help, or help themselves overcome this transition from the old psychological contract to the new psychological contract. It's interesting. It's sort of, it's sort of the study of bereavement for the people who are, who are left behind. Well, actually it is. The, uh, I, I came up with the term layoff survivor sickness, which is kind of an overarching term for uh, a combination of anger and fear and frustration and anxiety. And what we found was that people who trusted that the organization would take care of them, who felt that their skills were such that they couldn't be laid off, that when their friends were laid off, uh, they went through a very similar uh, grieving period from people who survive other forms of human trauma, like car accidents and plane crashes and other really terrible things. So survivor guilt is alive and well in many organizations today. And, and today it certainly is. Yeah, and I thought that uh, one of the messages of the first edition was that uh, you need to kind of put your social and emotional eggs under your own control. Uh, you need to uh, be in charge of your own life and career. Don't trust that the organization will take care of you. They might. Uh, but uh, continually network, don't sign up for life, uh, give them what they need, but take care of yourself. Uh, it didn't take, and what I found in the second edition and some of my work with... I'm sorry, you said it didn't take. Uh, the message of uh, 
the new psychological contract being kind of a uh, contract where people took care of themselves and didn't trust that the organization would take care of them or didn't define themselves in terms of where they work but define themselves in terms of what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people learned that lesson in the first round but they forgot it in the boom times that precipitated today's right. downsizing. And a lot of uh, relatively young and uh, bright uh, kids are going through now what their parents went through the first go around. Yes, and, and that, that's what two or three cohorts, if a cohort is what, presumably every six years or something like that. That's right. We're, we're dealing right, right with it. It's always interesting um, to speak to an author and an expert who has, has the uh, experience to look back over waves of um, those of us who remember the, the crash in 87 and where we were in October and then uh, when the peso devaluation in South America sort of went away in the early 90s and then we had what we had in, in the late 90s and 2000 with the tech bubble and then and then burst. Um, but, but specific to this, and I'm speaking with David Knorr, um, healing the wounds, revised and updated, overcoming the trauma of layoffs and revitalizing downsized organizations, talking about those that remain. Is it not true that in the good times, much like we don't watch our investments in the good times, but just they go along and we're caught in the downdraft of the bad times, we don't want to believe it, but uh, presumably if if, uh, Mr. Bernanke is right and the economy is righting itself, people like yourself can, can as the new dawn comes in, can encourage people not to forget what has happened in the course of the last uh, two years. Well, I think that, uh, I sure hope so, uh, because I think this current uh, economic crisis and the resulting downsizings and layoffs, and uh, we're much more global now. And so we're exporting, uh, we used to import from China, now we're exporting uh, job loss. Uh, and so the current economic downsizing crisis uh, is global. Uh, it's, it's what affects one country affects another country, so I think it's a lot more serious. I also think that the new, this is what I call the new psychological contract, which is that uh, we're all temporary employees. We just don't know it, uh, but we ought to behave accordingly. Uh, needs to be reemphasized, and hopefully we won't forget that. And there's an upside to that, and the upside is that uh, if organizations hire people who want to be there, uh, who are there as volunteers, if you will, who are there because of the work, uh, not because they have to be there, you get a much better employee. Uh, Just like the U.S. Army uh, in Vietnam era wasn't that great an army because of the draft. We have a wonderful army now. Why? Because people are there because they choose to be. It's a volunteer army. And the same thing with organizations. So I think the lesson for people uh, is to get some really good transferable skills to give the organization uh, what they need, but don't define themselves in terms of one company. Uh, You can be the best engineer in the world or the best uh, programmer in the world, but you don't have to be the best engineer for one company. The lesson for the companies is that you want to have people come because of the demand pull, because they're attracted to the work, Mm -hmm. not because they have no options and they've got to stay. Right. And what's happening, Paul, I think in some organizations today is that uh, those people with options have left and the people who stay are people who uh, don't have options. And when things do turn around, and I'm not quite as optimistic as the press is today, it, it's going to turn around. It has When it, things do turn around, they're going to lose some good employees who have some options unless they treat them right during this time frame. Well, I think you raise a, an interesting dichotomy, and that is between corporate and what I'll call senior management and then employees. Because it, it, uh, in listening to you, as I did, you're, you, on the one hand, you're, you're talking about the people who remain, but there is a management cadre in, who are the corporate core, the center, and is there. So uh, please address that. Address it from the, the senior management, and you alluded to it, but address it from the, what senior management has to do perhaps first, and then how they deal with, with the new mentality of those people who have their toolkit and have uh, presumably options when the economy <coughs> economy recovers. I, inter- interestingly, I went to, uh, I can't name the company, but I just spent some time with the company, and uh, I interviewed three or four levels of, of the company. The first were the, were the workers, their professional, non-man, it was a healthcare organization, professional, and then I interviewed the professional, man- the middle managers, and I interviewed the top managers. You said this is in healthcare generally. Yeah, uh, healthcare 
broad, broadly broad, stated. Yes. It's not. Uh -huh. It's a pretty big healthcare organization. And uh, my question was, what's the deal? I didn't use it quite that way, but what's the psychological contract? What's the connection? What do you expect from this employment relationship? And the first level workers, the professional workers, said, "Well, I expect that they're going to use my skills, and I expect that I'm going to learn something, and I do expect that when I do leave." They'll help me find a better job because I really can't count on this for life. They didn't quite say it that clearly, mm -hmm. but that's what the essence was. The middle managers said, I just don't know. It's really confusing to me because uh, they, they say be loyal, don't look for a job when you're still employed. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, managers are employees too, and we're not quite sure if we should be networking and looking for jobs ourselves, or we should be loyal to the company. So they were, the middle management was... Middle management didn't know whether to look up or look and down. And they were conflicting, as always has happened with middle management. Sure. The, the link pin, you know. Uh, top management in this particular company, and this was an older physician who had moved, moved out of his medical practice into uh, the top management role, basically said, well, what the deal is, is I can sit down and tell these young new graduates, uh, young lady and young man, if you... Uh, keep your nose to the grindstone and do the right things, someday you can be sitting in this chair. And so what the lesson from that was is that different levels of management have very different perspectives about what the psychological contract and the connection of person to job is. S and to some extent it's generational, uh, but not, not to a total extent. The other thing that happens is that I found that top management in times of trauma mergers, downsizing, economic stress has never been so self-actualizing because the CEOs are usually trying to save the company, trying to either look for a merger or something with the stock. The chief financial officers all tied up in numbers. The HR person is, is worried about the layoffs and the process and the lawyers worried about not getting suits. The top management generally are so focused and feel so relevant that they totally lose track of what's going on one level below them. And one of the things I've done with a lot of organizations is find ways to make the senior management aware of the fact that the world you see uh, is not the world that they see below you because they're angry and frustrated and some of them have survivor guilt and you've really got to respond to those emotional issues because when you do turn around, they're not going to be with you. But on the other hand, top management is often a portfolio kind of a manager in some organizations they're there for three or four years and they're gone with their stock. Uh, and so uh, it's kind of like the civil service and the uh, people who are elected. Uh, the, the real pain, I think, lies with upper and middle managers uh, because lower level employees have some options. but And they have time on their side. They have time and they're not as locked into lifestyles and tuition and uh, health care and right. things. But middle managers are really, uh, and these are, these are young people in middle management roles that are really confused. And so I think what they should learn, all of them, is that uh, we are temporary employees and that we do need to look out for ourselves. There's also some things that organizations can do to, to help this process. I was looking at um, specifically one of the chapters, and it, it was uh, requisite leadership competencies they don't teach in business school. Uh, in some measure now, there's a hierarchy to becoming part of a corporation. Before it was uh, a high school diploma, and now clearly it's a college, if not more. And all of that is uh, prepares you to be part of a larger organization. And yet with, and this is going to be a confused question, but with this whole issue of mobility and separate, separate tools, and social networking, there's just so much more information that people have that I don't know what they, what they do with it. I think it's confusing. It's a confusing thing that you learn, uh, and you are an academic, and, and I would ask you that question is how you, how you teach this kind of corporate sensitivity to these, these generational waves that are going through the American economy. Well, uh, not successfully. Professor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, I, what I found in, uh, when I was teaching MBAs, particularly in business school, was that my colleagues, uh, particularly in some business schools, uh, never really worked in organizations. I mean, they, 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 got a, they get a PhD in finance, 
uh, and started out as an assistant professor in finance and worked their way up and published. Their, their company was the university. Yeah, and they published in referee journals, and, and they really believe that what happens in organizations is rational and logical and analytical uh, because they've come up through an academic field that's rational, logical, analytical, and business today. It's uh, statistics and uh, uh, demand curves and uh, mathematical equations. Uh, so what I found was that there was a disconnect between what a lot of the professors were teaching MBAs, and the MBAs I taught were experienced. They had five or six, or, uh, and the MBAs knew more about what was going on in organizations than many of their professors because uh, uh, quantitative analytical skills are important, but when you have people who are feeling uh, depressed and angry and uh, cynical and uh, their, their world is falling apart, you can't analyze your way out of emotion. And so that uh, good managers have to be equally adept in uh, listening and empathy and responding to feelings and emotions than they do in planning and organizing and controlling and evaluating. Uh, and uh, I didn't have any problem with the MBAs uh, because they knew what was going on. I had a problem with the MBAs wondering how they could talk to their bosses mm -hmm. uh, and with some of my colleagues who really hadn't been inside a business, an business organization for 15 years. Well, and I think it raises, uh, here we are on the uh, one-year anniversary of the Lehman meltdown that weekend uh, over 15 September 2008. And, and uh, as the, the books that come out about it, that clearly, um, that clearly in, in your words, sort of an emotional meltdown. People had to make decisions. It wasn't a numbers game at the time. It was, but it wasn't. And clearly it was the interpersonal skills, it was the power, it was the politics, and it was a decision that had to be made without necessarily the cold light of analytics. As I remember that the Asian markets were gonna open at at noon on Sunday, and so uh, the decision had to be made in New York by Saturday night or early Sunday morning as to what was going to happen. And it seems to me that one of them, and, and this in the form of a question, is, is, is that accidents do happen and meltdowns happen because there are a series of car wrecks uh, that are caused as much by somebody having a heart attack at the wheel as the fact of the malfunction of the vehicle itself. Uh, how, how, do you, how do we prepare for the next time? Well, I think uh, <laughs> when it comes, David Nor, <laughs> healing the wounds, you know, it's one thing to say healing the wounds, David, what I'd like to find out is how do you avoid getting wounded? Yeah, well, I don't think you do. I think you have to, I think you have to uh, practice triage uh, and to uh, particularly, uh, Peter Drucker said it really well, what got you where you are, got you where you are won't keep you there. Uh, and the skills that most middle managers got promoted on under the kind of the old world where that they were pretty good at planning and organizing and controlling and evaluating all the analytical things uh, but suddenly they wake up in a crisis and uh, people who are under uh, the gun people who are feeling crummy about themselves their best bosses i always ask them what their best bosses were and their worst bosses were our bosses who are good listeners uh, who are able to respond to feelings and emotions uh, not who are soft, because I think soft, soft skills are hard skills. Uh, so I think what I would say is to rectify the imbalance between the emotional intelligence and the uh, quantitative intelligence. And emotional intelligence is a whole other field, but it basically says that uh, good leaders need to be adept at dealing in feelings and emotions as well as dealing in facts and figures, because I think the currency of the realm in the foreseeable future at least as I can see it in the next 15 or 20 years, is going to be a whole series of ups and downs and ins and outs. Uh, and the best leaders will be able to help their people and their organizations weather those, not by uh, metrics as much as by being interpersonally good. From your experience, are corporations of the future going to really benefit by keeping the same workforce, or is a, a new infusion uh, part of the new business culture? Are we, are we into uh, portable 401ks, portable health insurance, a variety of things that allow for corporations to come together around a group of people, people for a period of time, 
or is the model one that you do need a core in order to establish, in order to maintain the culture of a corporation? Culture is much talked about. EI is is uh, because it's now an initial. You know that it must mean something. Um, tell me what you think the the corporation of the future is going to do with uh, retention. Uh, I think there's there's always going to be uh, a series of entrepreneurs and owners uh, that own the virtual organization, but they're going to be smaller uh, and they're going to be much more flexible. Uh, and most of the employees of the, I think, of organizations of the future are going to be there uh, shorter periods of time. There are going to be a lot of in and out career paths where they stay for a while and leave. Uh, people, like, people like technology uh, grow by leaps and bounds. And so most managers that I know today uh, probably are very different than they were 10 years ago. And I think that accelerating curve of interests. And, ha and how would you explain that? Uh, you, you've had the uh, uh, almost unique advantage of seeing them through crises and others. How uh, are they different? They have learned a lot. They learned that the old paradigm, to use that uh, trite word, uh, has changed. And there's a series of faster paradigms. Uh, technology has helped them. Uh, even some of the old hard-bitten line managers that couldn't turn their computers on 10 years ago uh, are now uh, uh, tweeting. <laughs> uh, and so technology has broadened the horizon. Uh, they've had the bitter lessons of uh, that the way that they thought organizations should be, the sort of the permanence of organizations isn't there anymore. It's almost like what happened to, to physics when quantum physics came in, that uh, nothing A field of which I know very little, uh, meaning uh, other than the cold fusion issue that me they me went neither, through. Me neither, but with what, ago. you know, we had a fixed universe, right, that everything was, once you get it right, uh, it's not, not a lot's going to change. Uh, Max Weber, once you get organizations right, not a lot is going to change. You have spans of control and delegations of authority and job descriptions and things are permanent. Uh, that's the way a lot of managers came up. Uh, today you've got younger uh, employees, employees who work by computer, you've got employees who uh, don't want to stay for a long term, you've got lots of change. And I think the managers that are coping well are those that have the ability to flex out and understand this. Uh, both from the head, but also from themselves, because they, you know, and managers are employees too. Yes, and I, I should, I should stop because somebody who came in might have come in in the middle of the conversation would not know that I'm speaking with David Noor, Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at work, uh, discussing healing the wounds, the wounds that face uh, the trauma of layoffs, uh, revitalizing downsized organizations. Uh, David has a rich history in this and interestingly has uh, updated a book that first came out in, in 1993 and I think there's in this particular um, this particular instance I would say that's a great asset it's hardly a cheat to put a new cover on it and to merely update it the experience that uh, that you saw and understand from those days is is pivotal to understanding what is the same and and what is and what and what is truly truly different on the matter of, of corporations evolving and how you prepare for them, th this whole, th the whole consultancy, the issue of, of coaching, this EI, people being more, if you will, thoughtful about their leadership and the like. Do you see, do you see um, and I'm going to pick on Dick Falden, I don't know him and that's unfair, but do you see that people perhaps have learned that the icons have fallen and and it may be that they should learn not to distrust but also always back to your point about having their own kit to make sure that they have an almost independent assessment of how the corporation is doing and on the flip side of that for senior management now how do you how do you let people know what's going on in the c-suite um, at the same time that you maintain authority and leadership and um, and sort of equanimity throughout the organization, I, the, the, I, I don't I don't understand how it works anymore. So this is why I'm talking to you. Uh, <laughs> you ask good questions, Paul. Uh, let's see. From the I, I was so caught up in the question, I don't know if I can uh, give it a good answer. Well, it, it, it's really is you know Maslow had it right: the hierarchy of need, and, and to some extent, maybe we're dealing with a new hierarchy of need in running corporations. And and from your view, just wanted to to see how what is let me let me put it succinctly: what do people at the top, in your opinion, have to change 
in order to do better? And what do the people at the bottom, middle and bottom, what do they have to change to do themselves and the corporate structure better? Uh, at the top, and to generalize, because uh, there are some excellent top managers, but at the top, uh, I think they have to understand that uh, things are un things have cha are changing so rapidly that the skills, values, and perspectives that got them there uh, are not necessarily the skills, values, and perspectives that will keep the organization afloat. For example, insisting that people uh, not look for a job while still employed. There's a couple of companies I work with that think it's disloyal to look to run your resume off on the corporate uh, machine. It's disloyal to network uh, because that's not loyal. So loyalty, uh, you can be a wonderful employee, uh, but you need to be loyal to your own skills and not necessarily totally loyal to the organization. So it's a trick question because nobody wants to work for a boss who's you're not sure it's going to be there next week, who's looking for another job. On the other hand, if you're a boss, uh, and if you're not networking, uh, you may be out of a job with no options. And so this issue of provisionalism, uh, being cautiously loyal, uh, that sort of is, and senior executives sometimes don't get it because what you're telling them is that the values and skills that got where you where you are, which is total loyalty to the company, doing what the company tells you, company wants you to relocate, you say where and when and get in the plane and go there. Uh, and those are not the skills and values that employees have or that will keep the organization afloat because you want employees to be fluid. Uh, you don't want people to be there for 30 years and not have gone out and found some other experience because what you have is a plateaued workforce. Yeah, I, and I would add, I would just add to that from my own experience that I have found that corporations or senior executives who will not uh, encourage their, uh, somebody comes in an executive search and says, I've got one of your employees and I'd like to talk to them. I've always admired the person and say, go ahead, if you have a better opportunity. Um, but there are, there are people who say, out the door, don't come near any of, any of my people. And I always think that that's uh, self-defeating because ultimately they'll get stolen away anyway and the, you will not have the you will not have shown as a senior executive that what you want is uh, the best for your people. And it has a lot to do with leadership. If someone comes and says, I'm looking for another job, I don't, uh, let me talk to this other company, uh, you should have enough confidence in leadership that you are creating the environment that will make them productive much more than your competitor will. Yeah. So if, if they choose to work for you because of the work, because you're, you're helping them do what they need to do with their lives, they're going to stay and be much more loyal than you force them to stay. Uh, but it's a difficult adjustment for, for managers, and it's a difficult, it's kind of a catch-22 because you do want people to be loyal to the company. And you do, you do want to beat the competition, um, but at the same time, you got to, I use the word cautious loyalty mm -hmm. uh, because you got to be cautious and look after yourself too. Uh, and what about the people at the, the lower end? How, 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 could, how should they change to, uh, to better serve the corporate and better serve themselves? At the lower end, the first thing that what, what's, what's happening today in a lot of organizations is that people at the lower end that remain uh, are angry because they feel that uh, there's more work to do. Uh, and yes, they were lucky enough to stay, but they don't know for how long. And uh, nobody took out the work, so they're working harder feeling more anxious, I think what they need to do is to see this as a wake-up call, that uh, life is short, uh, you don't need to do work that's not, I guess, congruent with your human spirit, so know, know what turns you on and find work that turns you on, and don't let an organization seduce you into staying because uh, you're afraid to go somewhere else. Easier to say than do today, but for younger employees, they don't have the economic uh, uh, hooks that upper middle management has. So one is uh, be adventuresome. Do what you want to do with your life. Don't do what the organization wants you to do for your life. What you're going to find is that you'll do a better job for organizations uh, than you would if you just stuck around. Uh, so be true to yourself and find out what you want to do. Secondly is network. Uh, always find people who you want to talk to about jobs, what they're doing. Thirdly, and really importantly, I think these days, is uh, don't develop skills that are just relevant for your organization. Don't be the best editor for XYZ magazine. Don't, don't be the best engineer for this company.
because just knowing your own internal policies and procedures or how to get things through your own bureaucracy, uh, nobody cares about that outside the organization. So find out what the relevant skills are and learn them. And it has a lot to do with technology and a lot to do with uh, even going back to school. And a lot to do with the human spirit. Yes. And, and, and hopeful about the future and uh, embrace change because it's going to come at you whether you like it or not. Yeah, and people, uh, I really believe that all of us have uh, a purpose. I mean, we've got, we spend maybe our lives finding out what our purpose is, but uh, your life should be, your job should be a manifestation of who you are, your purpose, your unique gifts and skills. If you're working in congruence with that, that's wonderful. But if you find yourself in a job where you're doing things that are not what you want to do, uh, not in congruence with your human spirit, two things happen. One is uh, you don't do a very good job, uh, and secondly, you get depressed after a while, and you feel used. Uh, and if you're depressed and used, uh, customers see that immediately. Everybody suffers, right. including, the, including your boss and the people you work with. So the flip side, though, if you're turned on, you like what you're doing, uh, you're excited about it, uh, you have a customer, uh, you're going to do a great job. Amen. David Knorr, Healing the Wounds, Overcoming the Trauma of Layoffs and Revitalizing Downsized Organizations, uh, an important book when it first came out, an important book today, as relevant now as it was uh, 15 years ago. David, good luck with the book and, and good luck with the concept of people moving on with their lives. Thank you.